Monster movies, they've been around for nearly a hundred years. A great monster film does two things. The first one is that, well, it scares you. The sight of these monsters are meant to heighten your fears and put you on edge with their presence. But the second thing a monster film does is while your emotions are running high due to the fear of the different and unknown, it injects a heartbreaking message of how we usually treat those different to us. It can be Frankenstein in 1932. The monster terrifying at first glance, but what is more scary? Frankenstein's monster or the villagers who attack something that never asked to be created? You can look at the character of Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes, he's murdering teenagers, but there's a brief beat in the film where we are alone with the character and we realize he's in fear of his home being invaded by these unknown people who he may think are there to harm him. Not one person alive wants to watch a loved one deteriorate from cancer or any form of sickness in front of them. That's the message of David Cronenberg's The Fly in 1986. Despite the monstrous body horror aspect to it, it's really a heartbreaking story about losing the person you love. And in the early 2000s, horror master Don Coscarelli gave us the indie cult hit Bubba Hotep, a film billed as Elvis and John F. Kennedy fight a mummy. Some call it campy, I may agree a little, but what's really being said in that film is how we treat our elderly. And are we going to be there to take care of them, or are they just going to be disposed of and put in a home somewhere? Here's my last example. A film called Slapface just dropped on Shudder last week. It's about a boy who develops a relationship with a monster in an abandoned building in upstate New York. I'll let the filmmaker, Jeremiah Kipp, do the talking on what it really is about on today's show. So, with all that being said, welcome to the basement. So, guys, uh, this past weekend, I sat down and watched Shudder, like I always do on Saturdays, my day off. And Shudder is just, I've talked about Shudder multiple times. I get filmmakers from Shudder multiple times. I'm no way affiliated with Shudder at all. They do not pay me to watch all these movies and interview the filmmakers. But if they could send me a shirt or something, that would be cool. Anyway, I sat down and I watched the, the new film that dropped this past weekend called Slap Face. I watched the trailer, so I didn't go in too blind, but I did not know how absolutely much of an impact this movie would have on me, a horror film being so dramatic by the climax. And I have, looking at me right now, director Jeremiah Kipp, the guy behind the camera on this thing. Jeremiah, welcome to the basement. Tyler, thanks for having me. I'm, again, I'm just, I'm floored by slap face. Like, it's one of, I'm... I mean, the year is young, but I'd say it's one of the best things I've seen this year. So um, it's um, just real quick. What's the uh, to kick things off? I know this question, I feel like makes filmmakers nervous when I say it because of how I use it. But what's the elevator pitch of Slapface? Well, the way that we presented it was it's about a little boy who has lost his parents and he's living with his older brother, who's not much more than a boy himself. Uh, so they're struggling to make ends meet. They're from a lower income, poor family. Uh, and the older brother has strange disciplinary tactics that he probably learned from his own father, which involves a game called Slap Face, which is uh, the title. Uh, so it's a game where uh, uh, when the little boy gets in trouble, they take turns hitting each other as hard as they can. Uh, 
And it's a kind of sadistic and masochistic form of punishment. So growing up in that environment, you know, what, what's a little boy to do besides go out in the woods and make friends with uh, a local legend? Uh, he discovers a monster in the woods and uh, it creates a strange kinship and friendship between boy and monster. But as the story progresses, it grows deeper, darker, and weirder than boy or beast could possibly imagine. Yeah, that's pretty spot on. Well, I mean, of course, it's spot on. You made it. <laughs> um, we're we're going to touch on it a little bit later on. I mean, I, I have my questions and just some are questions. Some are just overall vibes I got from the movie that I just wanted to maybe talk to you about. Uh, but you and me, like, when we were swapping emails, when I initially reached out to you, you have worked with the great Larry Fessenden, who has been on the yeah. show before. Talk to, I mean, I have a story that I've told on the air, but I'll tell it again just for you. But um, talk to me about your, your, you and Larry. I think Larry's inspirational. You know, he's one of those New York uh, East Village filmmakers that really pioneered the, you know, this real DIY aesthetic for horror films, you know, a lot of people were doing dramas like Jim Jarmusch and um, even Spike Lee uh, was kind of coming up the ranks telling, you know, uh, stories of social impact. But Larry was taking uh, dramatic situations and infusing them with genre. So when you watch his movie Habit, uh, it's just so personal. It's like reading the pages of someone's diary. So it uses the vampire as a, as a metaphor for alcoholism but also despair and grief, it's really, uh, you know, if you're into character-driven horror movies, Habit is the one to start with. And then Larry and I became friends around the time that he made uh, Wendigo, which is my favorite film of his, which also, but not surprisingly, it also is a boy and, uh, and a monster that is fraught with metaphor. And Larry was using the monster in that movie as a way to talk about the fears of parenting and of stepping into your father's shoes, and the Wendigo was this Native American myth for him that took on subliminal superpowers. Um, and I, I, I was always very inspired by Wendigo. Like I, the, the movie has haunted me ever since watching it. And I'm sure that in its own way, it was an influence on uh, Slapface, which is, which takes some of the, um, the tropes of that movie, which are like, uh, which are, you know, indie film tropes, really. It's like, if you have a house or a cabin in the woods, Maybe there's a family living in there. And then what happens if there's a monster? Uh, Larry and I are both big fans of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Like I, I, we've talked about, you know, we've been sitting in bars, drinking pints of beer, talking about Mary Shelley, uh, which is a delightful barroom conversation. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the, the, the part that really struck me for Slapface was there's a beautiful middle section in the book where the monster is circling a farmhouse and imagining the lives of the characters inside. And when I had reread it, you know, I thought, wow, that would be a really interesting story to tell as a movie. And Wendigo probably did have what was a little bit on the brain when I was thinking about that. Just not so much the story that Larry told, because the story of Larry's movie is incredibly different than mine. It's a father, a mother, a child, uh, and the child's uh, preoccupation with the monster almost as a superhero or something. Uh, but um, I was like, well, what would my family be like inside of that farmhouse? And I thought a lot about where I grew up in Rhode Island. And uh, I grew up with my grandparents and we grew up in the woods. 
And my grandparents were extremely lenient about the films that they would allow me to watch when I was a kid. So I often was watching horror films like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Dawn of the Dead and uh, uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome, which really was too much for me at age 12. I mean, like when you see uh, yeah. James Woods pointing <laughs> gun out of his stomach, it was uh, like that was beyond my child's imagination. But like the rest of them, you know, Dawn of the Dead, it's like who wouldn't want to live in a shopping mall and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reminded me a lot of Grimm's fairy tales. You know, it's like it's, it's these people who were essentially going to a gingerbread house, only it's like with meat and uh, instead of candy and like uh, Leatherface standing in for the witch. Uh, I never, so I never really drew way. a distinction as a little boy between horror films and fairy tales. And the, and the structure of Slapface as well is like imagining the fairy tale monster uh, and then the story of the family inside the farmhouse was really informed by stories my grandfather had told me about him growing up. Like, indeed, he was chased by three little girls who threw rocks at him. And one of them would always circle back around and say, I'm your secret girlfriend. Don't tell anybody. Now kiss me. You know, so that went into the movie. You know, it's like, well, that, you know, that's going to those kind of ingredients will be the things that will personalize slap face for me. Um, so while Larry Fessenden was a gigantic jumping off point for me as a filmmaker to tell stories that are uh, uh, personal. I think Larry's films are personal to him. Every single yeah. film that Larry has made is about something that scares him or about something that he deeply values. And the fears that he has in his movies, some of them are about the environment, like The Last Winter is an environmental horror film. But uh, some of them are about him or his relationship with his father and habit, you know, or, some, or his relationship to having a child in Wendigo. Uh, his relationship to sustaining a marriage, you know, it's like uh, he's happily married, by the way, to great artist named Deck Underwood. Uh, but uh, but I think all those, you know, I, I think I learned a lot from Larry about like taking the elements from your own life that are important to you, that you value, uh, that you place value in, and the things that you're afraid of and putting them into your movie. So Larry, just as a guy to hang out with and talk about horror films, I learned so much from him. And if anybody in the New York filmmaking scene has been a mentor to me, I would call Larry that. I think Larry would laugh and scoff at me if I said that, but uh, but he really is important to a lot of filmmakers like myself. Yeah, he. so that is a great uh, paying respect to a, a great filmmaker. I, I think I think I kind of I, I kind of fanboyed out a little bit. I contained myself but kind of towards the end of that episode. I feel like I fanboyed out a little bit because I was such a fan of his work. I mean, I, I picked his brain about habit as much as I could. Cause that was, I saw that movie when I was maybe like no longer a teenager in my twenties now and in college and I'm trying, and I'm, I'm a, you know, big horror movie fan, but I'm, I'm trying to stop watching these just slashers or these ghost mm -hmm. jump scare things. And I got nothing against those, but like, I'm trying to broaden my horizon. And I just happened to forget how I even stumbled across habit. I think it was playing at some art house theater near where I grew up. I'm from new England too. I'm from Massachusetts. I'm from yeah, Western mass. Um, and I was just like, what is, this is just, this it, a horror film but it felt so personal felt like a new york movie like a new york like a, a, a an image of new york you just don't really see anymore like that that kind yeah. of new york feels like it's gone now a lot of that that pre 9 11 new york um 
I'm not a New Yorker, but I just, I talked to a lot of New Yorkers. I love that you recognize that movie, The Time Capsule of yeah. New York in that era, because it really does hold up as represent representative of like a certain time in the 1990s that isn't there anymore. Yeah. And, you know, a funny story, and I've, I've said it to him and I said it when I, I said it on the episode, uh, I was interviewing another filmmaker and Larry had a, a bit part in the movie. And I got it through like a, a PR firm. I was talking to a, uh, the director and I was waiting for him to log in on Zoom. And all of a sudden, while I'm waiting, it says Larry Fessenden has entered the waiting room. And I was like, and I just watched Jacob's Wife. Like, oh, amazing. Oh, amazing. One of my favorite movies of last year. Um, Barbara Crampton is a goal to get on this show, but she's very busy. <laughs> and I just remember going, no, like, what the hell is going on? And I click it. I, I lit him on. I'm thinking, I don't know. I, I knew Larry was in the movie, but I wasn't really phased by it. It was such a small part. Mm. And bam, there's Larry Fessenden right there. And I was like, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like, Tyler. And I, <laughs> and I was like, Larry, I would love to interview you. And maybe there was a mix up here. Maybe there wasn't, but I, I I'm waiting on the director of that movie <laughs> and he's like, ah, oh, I think I got it screwed up. Sorry. See you later. And, <laughs> I don't know, but I would love to interview. He's like, yeah, just send glass. eye picks an email. <laughs> and so like I emailed him like a month later and I was like, look, I don't, I know you really don't have anything out right now besides stuff that's been out for a couple months, but can I have an interview? And he was like, sure. And he just came on and talked to me and it was, it was probably one of my highlights of starting this podcast. It was really cool. Yeah. Well, that would be a highlight. I mean, he's, he's amazing to have a conversation with. His knowledge of the horror genre is deep. He's an inspirational figure. Like, I mean, he just goes out and does it. He makes movies. Like, he's a great, I wish he directed more. But as a producer, he's helped so many filmmakers along with great people like Ty West. And I think he's produced for Jim Nickel before, who's a filmmaker I really admire. Jen Wexler, who did a great film called Ranger. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, helped so many people. He's like the mayor of uh, of indie horror in New York. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Real quick, uh, before we get, that was an awesome little start to the show. Ten minutes of Larry Fessenden. I'll uh, be sure to send this I, to him. We talked the entire episode about. That. <laughs> uh, you also were, and we touched on this real quick before I hit record, but I, I just want to mention. You know, you and me are both friends with Jason Coombs, who's in charge of uh, Bridgeport right. Film Festival. Correct me if I'm wrong. Were you a were you were you a judge there or something? Did he? I was a judge there. Yeah, like uh, Jason knows me because I directed him in a TV show a couple of years ago, mm. and he was great to work with. He's a wonderful actor. He's incredibly intuitive and smart. Uh, he's extremely emotionally available. So I just love him as an actor. And then he's just one of those guys where New York is an island off of the coast of America and you just keep running into the same people over and over again and whatever, you know, yeah. you're walking down the street and you run into Larry Fessenden or you run into Jason Coombs and you're like, you catch up and you have that New York moment of like, hey man, how you doing? What's going on? What are you up to? Uh, and I was really excited when he was uh, creating this film festival. And Jason is just one of those guys where any opportunity that I have to support him or work with him, I take it. Because I think that his instincts are dead on. His taste is amazing. And uh, if you asked me to judge the festival again, I would sign up in a New York minute. All right. Well, I, 
don't know if I can say this. I might have to cut it out, but I'm pretty sure it's coming back for a season two. That's great. <laughs> a year two. Um, so just kind of moving ahead here to just touch on kind of the early days for you. Like my, my main question to go to is, I mean, you brought up, you know, some films that you watched early on, but like what was kind of, it doesn't even have to be a movie. I mean, obviously I feel like it's a movie with this question, but uh, like, what did you see that made you go, you know, I want to do that. I want to get behind the camera. I want to tell a story on that medium. Well, it was, I, like, like we were talking about before, there were so many horror movies that were inspirational to me as a child. But the movie that made me believe that it was possible to go out and make films was Blood Simple, which was the debut feature by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Uh, I remember Great watching movie. that movie and I'd, I'd heard about it through Roger Ebert's review. Uh, the plot sounded great. This film noir where like there's murders that are impossible to cover up and there's blood everywhere and you can't hide the body and so on. Um, and that was back when nobody knew who Frances McDormand was. But like when you saw the movie, you're like, she's brilliant. She's an amazing actor. Like, uh, And it has a great cast, including Emma Emmett Walsh and Dan Hedaya, who uh, who later figures into my life uh, in, by playing the sheriff in Slapface, which was really inspiring. But um, but back to Blood Symbol, in Roger Ebert's review, he talked about that movie saying it was as if these two brothers were making a film and they, ne- they didn't know if they would get another chance. So they're gonna put everything into this movie. They're, they're gonna fire on all cylinders and they're gonna put, and if this is the only movie they get to make, they will express all of it right here, right now. I was like, I gotta see this film. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching it and it was the first time that I felt aware of the camera. You know, a lot of horror people learn about the camera through John Carpenter who makes such brilliant use of widescreen. But even he, you know, yeah, I would watch his films and it felt, beyond me you know it's like it was like i i don't know you know like that feels like another world that feels like hollywood like you know low budget hollywood but still like completely inaccessible to me whereas blood simple felt a lot more like where i grew up which was like poor people bars houses woods uh and petty crime you know just like petty people making petty crimes but told with such glory you know, like the way that they would use the camera, they have a shot where the camera is like tracking down the bar and then kind of leaps over a drunk guy who's like passed out on the bar and then keeps going. And you're like, my God, these guys really are going for it in a way that uh, I hadn't seen before. And they were inspired by Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead, but like weirdly it was Blood Simple that did it for me that said like, this movie has a camera, this movie has brilliant actors in it, this movie is production designed, like there are sets and, you know, like environments that they created. There's sound design when Dan Hedaya is threatening John Getz. There's like uh, these like, um, like insects like fluttering around in the background getting zapped by a zapper, you know, in the middle of this very tense scene, which is very Coen Brothers. So I remember watching that and saying, this is what I want to do. I want to make movies just like this. And not long after that, my grandparents had bought a VHS camcorder, which I think they intended just to, used to shoot like weddings and family gatherings and so on. But immediately I grabbed the camera and was like, all right, we're making a movie, you know, like uh, granddad, you're going to be the killer and mom, you're going to be a reporter investigating and so on and so forth. And then that weekend I invited all my friends over and we're like, all right, bring army jackets. We're doing a war movie. And it became everything from like, you know, you're making like Godzilla sea monsters in the bathtub to zombies attacking the house and so on and so forth. I must've made 300 terrible films when I was in Rhode Island growing up. But 
you know, I was able to cut a little reel together when I applied to NYU, New York University, uh, which is the only film school or the only university that I applied to. But I did have enough material to cut together a pretty nice little two minute reel. Uh, and I think that may have tipped the scales and gotten me to move to New York and go to film school. So when I was 17, I shipped out of Rhode Island, uh, moved here to New York City and never looked back. And, you know, film school was when, where I got exposed to uh, all sorts of movies that I didn't have access to when I was a little kid. But you never forget where you come from. And I kind of had never forgotten the genre films that really meant something to me when I was little. But I mean, that's not too strange because my grandfather talked about growing up during the Great Depression and Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, the Universal Horror movies were all coming out. And they certainly made a huge impression on him and he never forgot them. I think you never forget those formative experiences and you kind of carry them with you for the rest of your experience. No, that, that's well said. I remember, I remember the first time I got a camera as a gift and it was, I think this was like the early 2000s. And um, well, it actually all started maybe late nineties. Cause I would go to the, uh, I would go to the local cable access channel and rent out. Um, I'd have to go with my dad. I was like, you know, 10 or 11 years old. <laughs> I couldn't just be a kid that showed up and say, hey, can I rent this camera? And I would, I'd take it. And I, I think, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been watching Martin Scorsese movies at 10 or 11, like gangster, like Goodfellas casino, yeah. like at that age. But I, I, I wanted to make gangster films when I was like 11 or 12. So I just, I somewhere in a box in my parents' basement, the original basement of the basement here, mm. um, there's got to be tapes of just like awful me and my friends in trench coats, just oh like, you know, you better not talk to me like that. I'm gonna have you whacked or something. Like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> and I, I, I that's my that's a, my childhood as well. I mean, yeah. like just tons of stuff where you're at, you know, you're 12, 13 years old and being like acting like a, a killer. Yeah, that's you know, like <laughs> I, I one of the I, mean, first... I hope nobody finds those. <laughs> no, I hope nobody finds <laughs> but these. They were, but they were definitely like uh, you know. But I'm definitely glad I did that because you learn you learn a heck of a lot yeah. about making movies by making movies. I remember I made a movie on a tape. Uh, I, the, it's like 2003. I got, I got a camera, like a Walmart camera for Christmas. And, mm. you know, it was definitely one of those gifts from my dad. Like I, I, you know, I could always tell who, what my mom got me, what my dad got me. And like, I could be wrong. Maybe my mom got me this, but it felt like a dad gift on Christmas because he knew I was really into this. I was writing little scripts by hand. And, um, cause I don't know, I didn't know the idea of you type it on the computer and submit it to an agent at the, when I was 14 years old, but <laughs> I remember making like, it was John Carpenter's Halloween meets silence of the lambs. So it's yeah. like, it's like the FBI is tracking down Michael Myers or something. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't that's really, great. I don't know, yeah. but that's what, yeah, that's what you should be doing when you're, when you got your camcorder and you're making your movies in the basement and so on, like, Go do that. Like yeah, you know, do no, that hundreds of times. Like, and you will learn a heck of a lot. Make really bad stuff. So you just keep getting better and better and better. Yeah, I think it is like some of it is get the bad stuff out of your system. I mean, that's like, true too. Yeah. Stuff that anybody is going to do is going to be informed by the movies that you're watching. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be a lot of you copying other people, like, mm -hmm. because you learned how to compose a shot from watching the John Carpenter movie and you learned, you might have learned a little bit about special effects from watching, you know, some David Cronenberg stuff and yeah. you're copying it, you know, you're essentially, yeah. you know, you, you're, and like by copying it over and over again, you're forming your own ideas. But like, you know, Larry Fessenden is no different. 
you know, he was copying John Cassavetes and Roman Polanski. You yeah. Know, he, like, he was like looking at those guys and saying like, how can I tell my vampire story through their lens? And so the result is not a copy of Polanski or Cassavetes. It, it's like, once you start telling the stories that are yours, then it's no longer about Polanski. It's no longer about Cassavetes, it's about Fessenden. You know, and like once I'd done a bunch of that stuff and decided I wanted to st tell stories that were mine, you know, like uh, that, that took elements of my, you know, my biography or my wants and desires or my fears, you know, then the, then the films can only be made by you, you know, so they're no longer like derivative of Mike yeah. Tarantino, uh, who, by the way, makes the best mixtapes ever of like yeah. uh, of other <laughs> movies, you know. Um, so, you know, I don't think there's any shame in um, in looking to the people who preceded you. I mean, we're all like walking down these paths, following these footsteps of the people who preceded us, like learning from them. And then trying stuff on and gradually as we go we get better you know mm -hmm. we become more able to say wow that's my voice you know that's the thing that i want to say agreed i was just doing some research on you earlier today and i looked up a couple interviews from you from maybe a few years ago uh so you kind of i don't know if you were like on the scene or if you were still in college or whatnot but you were kind of around during that like 90s independent boom that was kind of going on at the, at the moment. Uh, talk to me about, I mean, I was just a kid then, but like, just talk to me about, you know, kind of that time. Cause that was, I feel such a, I feel we're starting to look back at that era right now in the films and filmmakers that have come out of it. Yeah. I was living in New York in the nineties and what a great time to be in the city because all these great movies were coming out. It was a time where independent films were everywhere. And, you know, it was like a different, financing system where it's like we have a script and Christopher Walken is available let's go make a movie you know here's a million dollars go you know it's like that doesn't really happen anymore you know it's uh um but then but all these like cool artists were out there making their movies so there's Abel Ferrara out there with Harvey Keitel stealing shots outside of uh Penn Station for Bad Lieutenant and uh Jim Jarmusch has always been extremely local. I mean, yeah, he's one of those guys where talk about walking down the street of New York, you can't miss him with that shock of white hair. Um, it was a really inspiring time where you felt like people were able to tell stories off the beaten path that were not Hollywood. And, uh, and when Pulp Fiction hit, it was like that thing had gone to the next level. It's like things were happening beyond just couple of scrappy kids with cameras like doing stuff that might play a couple of film festivals and you know play at one or two art house theaters you know it's like suddenly like the the floodgates were open and like anything could go um and you know like I was part of a filmmaking collective at the time called the Sunday Club and the deal with that was like it was kind of like making the 300 shitty movies when I was a little kid only it was like let's get together every Sunday and make yeah, you know, we'll have some brunch, we'll make a movie and we'll just keep practicing. But one of the people in that group, a uh, great filmmaker named uh, Kim Cummings, uh, she was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop some serious money. I'm gonna shoot a movie on 16 millimeter. We're gonna have a steady cam. You know, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna go all out. And uh, that was the job where I was like, uh, I was like, wow, you know, like now we're, you know, we're like 30, 40 people instead of, you know, a scrappy team of 10 making the little movie. Um, and I was like, wow, I want to keep doing that. 
Uh, and then, and you know, a couple of years later, I, I made the film that like had the most festival success in my career, the short film that kind of really launched my professional career, which was called The Christmas Party, which was about a little, another little boy story, which was about a little boy dropped off at a, a Christmas party, but it was a Christmas party run by Christians, the kind who want everybody else in the world to be Christian too. So oh. like it, while it wasn't a literal invasion of the body snatchers, it had that scary quality of conversion. Uh, and that movie did extremely Good analogy. well. That played for like, you know, three or four years in the festivals and it played, you know, they loved it in France. You know, it was one of those kind of deals where, uh, and a lot of people were asking me, do you have a feature length script? And the time I did not, you know, and that was like one of the, you know, one of the hard lessons that I learned was you, when opportunity calls, you must be ready. Mm -hmm. um, so I was like, yeah, I'm going to start writing the script right now. And three years later, I had a feature length script. I was like, hey guys, I got one. And they're like, they, they had already moved on. All those financing entities had closed, you know, and like they'd funded other projects and they'd missed my shot. And I was like, I will never let that happen again. I'm going to, I'm going to really learn how to write. I'm going to really learn how to make films. Uh, and I'm just going to develop my skills. And for the next couple of years, I was uh, what they call a first assistant director, which is uh, you're, you're essentially in charge of scheduling and you're quarterbacking the crew to facilitate the vision of the director. Uh, I did a few of those for Glass Eye Picks. I worked twice with a great director named James Felix McKenney, who was another huge inspirational figure for me. And I worked once for Glenn McQuaid on a film called I Sell the Dead, which was a period film starring Ron Perlman and Dominic Monaghan from Lord of the Rings and Angus Scrimm from Phantasm. Mm -hmm. And like, it was like set in the 1800s with grave robbers in Ireland or something like that. And that was, also a great learning experience um, where it's like, oh, you know, that's, I, I was watching Glenn learn how to work with name talent and like the, and the way that you approach like personalities who are used to working on like much bigger budget movies. Um, a lot of them come back to independent films because they want to remind themselves what it's all about, you know, and also they don't really like sitting in their trailer. Independent films move much faster. And they're able to be on the floor a lot more often in acting, which is what a lot of them really love doing. So after a couple of years of being a first AD, uh, I got back into the director's chair. And for the past like 10, 12 years, it's been nonstop directing movies. Uh, and a lot of it was work for hire. So like the first five features that I did were essentially, you know, somebody had seen a short film that I made. And they would say, you're the one, we're hiring you to direct this feature. We're doing a killer in the woods movie with Tom Savini killing teenagers. I was going to ask uh, you about this. Call I heard about it. You know, let's go. Uh, and working with Tom was my first time directing somebody that was a hero of mine from being a little kid. As I said, I'd seen Dawn of the Dead. And it's always quite something when you're working with somebody who you saw when you were little uh, and now you're directing them. And the thing that was really important with people like Tom Savini is that you cannot put them on a pedestal. You have to treat them like a peer. You have to put, treat them like a colleague. So with Tom, you know, I never talked to him about Friday the 13th or Dawn of the Dead or yeah. any of that stuff. We talked about this movie. Um, and what was funny with him was I'd heard that, I mean, he has a pretty bad reputation for being mean to uh, fans if they get on his nerves. You know, he's not afraid to act like, you know, some people think of him as a jerk because he isn't really interested in buttering anybody up. Uh, the director of photography, and I knew that. 
So when he showed up, we'd been filming for about a week and a half already. And we showed him, you know, he walked in and was prepared to direct the movie for us. He's like, why don't you put the camera here and I'll walk over here and I'll kill this guy over here. And like this and that, and the other thing. And like, Tom, that's great. Uh, I think you should go to hair makeup. But before you do, here's two minutes of the movie that we shot so far. And he watched it and he was like, oh, oh, great, great. Excellent. I'm glad you showed that to me. You guys are good. (laughs) And then the rest of the time he was on our side and really supportive and really supportive of the crew. It was particularly helpful because the producers of that film had never made a movie before ever in their lives and did not really know what they were getting into. And crews can get very salty and tough. Mm. Uh, But Tom really stood up for us. And, you know, like they were, they took Tom out to dinner and like, hey, we want to talk to you about Pride the 13th. And he said, well, what I want to talk to you about is getting Flay Mignon for the crew tomorrow for for lunch, you know, like take care of your crew. Uh, And by the end of the movie, he was doing his own stunts. Uh, You know, it's like, uh, uh, don't you think it'd be so much better, Jeremiah, if I jumped on top of that truck when it like is speeding along and pins me against the wall? I'm like, Tom, (laughs) you're 65 years old. But the guy is built like a panzer tank and he, and he yeah. has done a lot of stunts. I mean, you can see them in Dawn of the Dead. And uh, he was like, well, no, like if, if we do it this way and if the truck is coming and I'm here, then it will like, it'll be like a magic trick and I'll be able to jump on the hood and it will look dangerous, but it will not be dangerous. And, like, and when we did that, I was like, my God, it's so much better having Tom on the hood of that truck. Mm-hmm. Now, that movie I'm not particularly proud of. You know, it's one of those, like a, a lot of the work that I did, you know, it's like, here's the script. We don't care if it's a shitty script. Go make the shitty script. I mean, literally one time I was directing a feature and, and I was like, can we make some revisions? So like, nope, we want to shoot this shitty script. That was their exact words. Uh, so, oh you know, it's like, all right, you know, but like nobody was going to give me the money to make Slapface at that time. You know, it's like I'd never made a feature before. I mean, I'd made these short films, but nobody really cared. The most I could get was this Killer in the Woods movie, and I really wanted to work with Tom Savini. I learned a hell of a lot about stunts. I learned a hell of a lot about working with talent. Uh, Tom was extremely supportive, and he said, you know, for years, we've been trying to work together again and just haven't been able to for various reasons. But uh, um, but it went on like that for a while. The second feature was like lesbian vampire movie, you know, and uh, the third feature, I learned a lot about uh, like there was a really pretty good script on that movie. Uh, it was a HP Lovecraft style monster movie with like tentacle creature coming out of the water and like Night of the Creeps style zombies with exploding heads and parasites coming out, all this fun stuff. Uh, but like what, what I learned on that job was that you, you should really stick to what the writer was trying to do because that script was pretty good but like they just kept bringing in endless writers you know it was like there were four or five writers you i, I nicknamed it uh justice league or batman versus superman or something like that because so many writers had come on that it had diluted the thing and it made absolutely no sense uh and and it came to the point where we were in the edit and we keep going back for endless reshoots and i uh finally like was like all right well let me let me write like 20 pages worth of material to like tie this thing together. I'm writer number six at this point. Uh, and I directed those and I was like, man, you know, it's like, uh, you know, that was like the first time on a feature that I directed something that I'd written. And I've said, wow, you know, I kind of want to get back to doing this somehow or other. I'm going to try to find my way back to that. A couple of features later, I'm still, you know, I'm still there, but like Slapface still hasn't been made. And the director of photography, who I work with a lot, Dominic Civilli, said, hey, you know, why don't you 
why don't you shoot some of that as a proof of concept? Why don't you do like a five minute version of Scott Pace? I'll pay for it. I'll give you $5,000. $5,000. Doesn't that sound nice? I'm like, yeah, Dom, $5,000. Let's go make it. He's like, well, why don't you, uh, why don't you do a little crowdfunding? So maybe I don't have to spend all the 5,000. I'm like, great. So we crowdfund and we get the money. And Dom says, boy, that's a good thing. Cause I didn't have $5,000 at all. You know, I just wanted you to tell your story. I wanted you to fulfill your dream. Now I was torn between giving Dominic a gigantic hug and punching him in the face because I was like, oh my God, you tricked me. Like we had already started pre-production before, um, before we had the crowdfunding money. Uh, but we went out and made it, you know, and that was the, the short that we cashed in all the favors that we'd accumulated over the years where the gaffer gave us his truck for a couple of days, but charged us only one day. A lot of the crew worked for free just out of goodwill. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Dominic worked for free and gave us his camera, his lenses, his entire package for free. And, you know, we went out and we made it. Uh, and it was really fulfilling. It was great to shoot that movie, the short. And yeah, I said, I was... you know, if we never make the feature, uh, I, at least I know that we did this, you know. And, uh, and we're going to do the film festival thing with that. And I'm going to tell anybody who listens that's proof of concept. But if it goes no further than this, at least I've told the story where there's a monster and a little boy and things not based and so on. Uh, so we did a three-year festival run the whole time. I'm, you know, making other work for higher movies and, you know, continuing my career. Uh, and about two years into the festival run, that's when I met... Uh, the people who ultimately became the producers of the Scott Pace feature. Uh, Joe Benedetto was a guy that I kind of knew in New York, but we never worked together. And Mike Manning, I did not know at all. He was like this LA actor, quite seen in movies, but, um, but I didn't know him personally. And Joe and Mike were like, hey, um, we, we want to do the feature. You know, we love the script. You know, and, and I was very fortunate. Like uh, the problem that I had trying to get the feature made earlier was not just, you know, like that I hadn't done anything before. It was really hard for producers and financiers to see what it was. Like movies like Hereditary and The Babadook and The Witch hadn't come out yet. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't really a frame for character-driven horror films. I mean, there was stuff that Larry Fessenden was doing, but like, uh, but for an investor, you know, they're like, I haven't heard of Wendigo, you know? I mean, despite yeah. the fact that it's really dumb. Uh, and, you know, uh, but like when, when, Babadook and Hereditary and The Witch had come out, it created a whole new frame for looking at that kind of movie. Um, and, uh, and it was great because now these guys were like, you know, so when they were looking for a project, they said, we want a dysfunctional family story with something supernatural in it. And my story gave that to them. Uh, so we signed a contract. And at, <laughs> I even remember thinking at the time, I was like, you know, I've been through this before. You know, I've had options for this project. And we spent a year trying to find the money and nothing happened. And we were right back where we started. And I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to enjoy the journey. You know, Joe and Mike will either find the move, find the money or they won't. And, uh, and if they do, we're going to go make it. And if they don't, we won't. But then eight months later, there we were day one of principal photography. There's the little boy, there's the monster. And I'm like, Holy cow. You know, if you build it, they will come. Uh, so that proof of concept short leading to the feature was you know, I, I was like, wow, you know, it's like that really did help because nobody could envision the monster before that and nobody could envision the tone of the movie before that. But after we made the short, which did very well, 
you know, suddenly it's like producers can see the movie. They can imagine the 90 minute version mm-hmm. or 84 minutes, as it turns out, the 84 minute version of what we, what we did. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I, I get that a lot with a lot of anything that I put out there to the powers that be it's like, you know, do you have a short of this? And I go, no. And a lot of, I always get a lot of like the, you know, I'd like a five to 10 minute short. So I, I, I think it, that's actually a very good way of getting your feature films made these days. I mean, some people could argue otherwise. And I was, I was going to bring up the, the uh, slap face short, but I think you kind of answered a lot of my questions. On yeah, I think there. that if anybody wants to do that, like if they want to create a proof of concept for their feature, the advice I would give is this. It's like, tell if you can try to tell a complete story with that short, because yeah. if you don't get to do your feature right away, even if you don't get to do your feature right away, let's say that you do your short for three years and nothing happens. At least you've told a version of that story. And I prefer like a short film that is complete unto itself to like a trailer or something like that, because you can't really show a trailer at film festivals. You can only really show a trailer to investors, but you know, people like me, I mean, I didn't know, I don't know people with, money that they can invest in a feature film. I mean, I just don't know those people. I don't go to those parties. Mike Manning does, you know, and was able to. Uh, And that's the difference between me and Mike was that Mike had access to the people that ultimately would invest in this film. And he had produced films before. Uh, He produced a film called um, MFA that played South by Southwest, a really terrific thriller. And, you know, so he'd already been through the process of getting investors and putting a movie out there and selling the movie and then re-upping with mm-hmm. some of those investors again. Um, and that was an experience that I was very happy to have. And I learned a lot about investors too. I mean, I, I mean, I've worked on a bunch of work for hire movies where the investors were there, but like uh, the investors on Slapface, like they were more than just like suits and bank accounts. You know, they were people that were really interested and had their own reasons for investing money in the movie. That's a good um, thing, Like, so for instance, Curtis Fraley is a Nashville country Western singer and he put money into Slapface because I think that he felt like this story fit his brand. You know, it's like he, you know, he, when you think about the music of someone like Hank Williams, you know, you can easily imagine like Slapface, if it were a country Western song, it might be a Hank Williams song. Yeah. You know, so like every investor had their own personal reason for putting money in that didn't, that of course they want to make their money back. And of course they want, you know, investing in a horror film is a pretty sound investment because uh, if it's done well, there's a, there's a shot of making that money back, even if there aren't famous people in your movie. But these investors like also were like, it's like, yes, we want to make our money back, but also this movie is saying something that I care about, whether it's about bullying or whether it's like an interest in genre films or metaphor or whatever, you know, there was always something more than just money. Um, and when I was talking to those investors, I learned a lot about that. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, investors are not just dollars and cents. They're people with thoughts and feelings who, um, who are investing not just their money, but like their, you know, their time and their care into a project, you know, and mm-hmm. that was really gratifying for me. I felt like I'd learned a lot. You always learn a lot when you're making stuff. And that was one of the big takeaways from Slapface, the feature. No, I bet. No, I, let's uh, let, let's just jump into Slapface, right? <laughs> that was a solid transition. I mean, you kind of gave me the origin story there, mm. um, but I, I, this was a flawless cast, if you ask me. This was. How did you put these pieces together? I, I, 
I worship the, the kids, the adults, the brother, just everybody in there fit into this story so well. So how did you put these pieces together? Well, I, I'd start by saying that like one of the early discussions I had with Mike Manning and Joe Benedetto and later on Artisha Mantuber, who was our third producer, uh, the quality of the performances was extremely important to us. Uh, I, I think it's undervalued in a lot of genre films, less so now, I think. I think that now that Tony Collette has been in Hereditary, everybody knows that like great acting can be yeah. in horror films. Uh, but there was something that we're, we're, we're like, you know, when you have a limited amount of money, you say, well, what do we want to spend the money on? And one of the things that we decided was that we wanted the cast to be impeccable. Uh, and it all starts with the little boy. Uh, and we had a casting director named Carolyn Sinclair, who was great to work with. I'm working with her again on a feature that we're starting principal photography on March 1st. So, you know, once again with Carolyn, uh, but like the producers and I and Carolyn all made our lists of like child actors. And weirdly, August Maturo was like number one on all of our lists when we compared them, you know, because August had been in a horror film called The Nun, which made the investors really happy because that movie made billions and millions of dollars. But what I liked about August was that I'd seen him in some of his independent film work. And for years and years, he was on a TV show called Girl Meets World, uh, which was a show for children. But like August is just so intuitive and he's a really peculiar actor, you know, and he's really unique, like he's singular. Uh, like there's only one August Maturo. There, there aren't like many of him. There's one of him. He is uniquely his own animal. Uh, I just found him able to access thoughts and feelings that are hard for a child to access. Like he's tw he was 12 when we made the movie and 12 year olds, I mean, we auditioned a lot of kids too, just in case August couldn't do it. I mean, you know, it's like there were a lot of talented children that we looked at, but it was very hard for them to access all of the things the character needed to do. So some of them could express rage, but not grief. You know, some, something that's very hard yeah. for children to tap into is trauma like representing trauma as character. And August is not traumatized, but he is an artist. He, is, he has a very, very powerful inner life. He's extremely mature, like just hanging out and talking to him. It reminded me of when I was a little kid because I always felt like I was in my 40s when I was a child. And then I'm in my 40s now. And I felt like I had finally grown into myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and August, it was like talking to an adult. I mean, you could talk to him as a peer, it wasn't like talking down to a child. It was talking eye to eye to a collaborator. Uh, and I didn't know this about him when we cast him. I just knew he was a great actor. So you're crossing your fingers saying like, I hope August is not a brat. I hope his mother is not a domineering stage mom. And fortunately for us, like you know, once we started rehearsing with August, you could tell right away that he is an actor's actor. He really loves performing. He loves playing make-believe and he likes, and he's interested in the filmmaking process. From all those years of working in television, he knows how to hit a mark, he knows where the lens is, he knows where the light is. But like in addition to technically being proficient, his soul is so deep. Uh, and, and I was so proud to be able to have him because he was able to uh, play a very complicated character uh, and, and not skip a beat, you know, he was able to be there every day. He, he loved being there. He showed up every morning before the coffee got there, eager to act. And his mom 
was did all the right things that a parent should do with a child actor, which is that she knows that her child loves acting. She gives him the space to do it and does not pressure him because uh, any actor does not become better when you pressure them. And child actors who do not want to be there, you know, it's hell, you know, they'll crawl under a table and go to sleep and not, and not want to act for you. Um, and I, I was a child actor myself. So like, I, I know how I like to be, how I like to be treated. And I've worked with a lot of children in short films over the years and television and so on. So I like working with kids. Uh, and August was uh, a dream, you know, it was just, he was just really fun. Uh, Mike Manning, it was interesting with him. He plays Tom, the older brother. Now, originally in the short and for years while the speech was trying to get made, it was a father-son story where the mother had died. And Mike proposed the idea because he is also an actor and he read the script and was like, oh my God, Tom is a great part. He's like, what if Tom were the older brother? And I immediately was like, no way, forget it. There's no way I'm going to do that because I remembered watching the remake of John Carpenter's The Fog. And everybody was younger and prettier than yeah. the actors in, uh, in Carpenter's movie who all looked real and grounded. Like Tom Atkins looks like a grizzled character actor. And yeah. They replaced him with like a 25 year old, beautiful looking guy with no pores, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, he looked like he, like this um, incredibly. That's what I love guy. about movies from um, that era. Hmm? That's what I love about movies from that era. Like everybody just, looks people different, look real like, you know yeah, it's they like, look like people real look grounded people, and like, real in, in that era like jamie lee curtis in halloween looks like a kid yeah. you know looks like looks like somebody that you could be friends with and her friends are like annoying you know in a way that is very accessible and real like you know like it's like yeah that's what they're that's what it's like to hang out with people and now you know it's hard because they want people to be pretty and likable and you know it's and i'm more of the guillermo del toro school of like i'm only interested in children and old people uh, so I was resistant to Mike's idea, but then he was like, can, can I, can we talk about it for like two hours? You know, I said, all right, let's talk about it, but not as director producer. Let's pretend for a minute that you're acting in this part. Let's talk director and actor. So for two hours we talked and Mike became incredibly personal. Uh, and he talked about all the reasons why he felt like he could access this role. And the more we talked about it, the more I realized that it was more interesting having, uh, an older brother because it's one thing to have the uh, a dissipated father figure, you know, a dad who's all screwed up and there's no hope for him. But if it's a guy who's not much more than the little boy himself, who's forced to act like the father mm -hmm. and is forced to use the tools that he's learned, which is clearly from an abusive dad who drinks too much and has a lot of problems. Like he's acquired all, everything that he's learned about parenting, he's learned from a dysfunctional, toxic uh, relationship. Uh, so he's applying those rules to his younger brother while trying to do a good job. You know, he's trying to be the dad. The person who's trying to be the dad and failing is way more interesting than the dad. And uh, fortunately for me, I was reading Mark. I was rereading -re uh, Mark Twain's uh, Huckleberry Finn at the time, and that book is all about Huck being forced into situations where he has to be a grown-up in situations that are much darker and weirder than he has the equipment to handle, and he's kind of winging it. So I made a deal with Mike. I said, let me take two weeks and work on the script. Uh, and if I don't like the idea, then we'll all part company and we won't make this movie together. And I also called up Larry Fessenden back to Larry. And I said, Larry, I can't believe they're doing this crap to me. You know, why can't we just do this with glass eye picks? You know, and he's like, listen, I think I think Mike's idea is really good. 
you know, I think that you should actually really think about it and, and, and maybe, you know, maybe do, spend that two weeks and, and do the writing and see if it, see if it sits with you. The producer of the short proof concept, Natasha Straley said the same thing. She's like, I think it's a really good idea. I think you should listen to Mike. And I was like, all right, let me, let me try. And I wrote for two weeks and immediately you could tell it was better. Immediately you're like, oh my God, this is a more interesting character. Mike is going to play the shit out of it. And it was a real breakthrough for me and Mike as producer and director, because suddenly he was as invested in this project as I was, like not just as a producer, but as a producer and an actor who was, who was soulfully intertwined with the making of this movie. And uh, just to continue with Mike for a second, we shot the movie on location. So the crew house was like one minute away and August was staying at a little cottage with his mom two minutes away from set. But Mike Manning lived on the set. So Tom's bedroom was the room that Mike slept in. And when Tom went to the kitchen to get some orange juice from the fridge, he was drinking from, he was drinking Tom's orange juice and the coffee maker was Tom's coffee maker. So he was literally living on the set that his character lives on for the duration of the shoot, which I think was really great for Mike. I mean, you, you don't get that opportunity very often to be immersed in a world like we were in the making of Slapface. And fortunately we all really got along, you know, Mike and August and I really clicked. Lucas Hassel, who played the monster, is an actor that I've known for 10 years. Uh, whenever we would do screenplay readings of the story, you know, just to like hear it read out loud and make the script better, he, I would always enlist him to be the script reader because he's a great actor and my scripts don't have a lot of dialogue and the reader needs to be very entertaining and interesting. Mm -hmm. I'd also tell Lucas, you got to make the monster very real for the audience. And after a couple of times of reading it, he said to me, uh, hey, you know, if you ever get a chance to make this movie, I'd love to take a crack at playing this monster. Uh, and sure enough, when we did the short, he played the monster beautifully. And for the feature, it was, you know, it took a little convincing with the producers. They're like, you want a six foot four Danish dude to play the female monster? And I was like, yes, I do. Um, because he'd worked a lot with special effects. He'd played creatures before. Also, like he had a lot of television credits, like he played a major villain on the blacklist. So, you know, like we were able to do it. And then it was, it, that was one where when we shot the movie, in much the same way I came around to the idea of Mike playing an older brother instead of a father, they came around to Lucas Hassel embodying the monster. Uh, I was really happy they didn't cast a stunt person or something, even though many stunt people are wonderful actors. But like, uh, to, I, I think that when you're playing a monster, it's all just rubber and paint, unless there's an actor filling that part. And that's been true ever since Boris Karloff played Frankenstein yes. and Robert Englund played Freddy Krueger and Doug Jones played Pan and Pan's Labyrinth and countless other Guillermo del Toro creatures. I the think, actor um, who inhabits the creature makeup is as much of a special effect as the, as the work that um, the, uh, the artists who design creatures are doing. Uh, I, and the monster was the collective effort of the actors, the wardrobe, uh, the uh, special effects department, sound design, camera lighting everything every department touched the monster in some ways yeah. um but yeah th those were the those are some of the core cast members and I, I i would be remiss if i didn't mention one final person because it brings us back to blood simple we were casting for the sheriff and it's been well publicized that like we um we originally had william sadler as the sheriff uh it was a wonderful actor and uh, he it, it came to a point where he could not do the movie because of I think Bill and Ted three was doing reshoots or something was happening and he just couldn't do it anymore. And so now we're like back to casting. Now I should tell you, I never thought of Dan Hedaya for this role. I mean, he just didn't, wasn't on our radar at all, but like 
the Gersh agency came to us and said, you know, I know you're still looking for the sheriff. What do you think of Dan Hidea? And we all stopped and thought about that for a second. We were like, oh my God, Dan Hidea would be great. And I remembered, I was like, yeah, Blood Simple was the movie that made me want to make movies. Like we'll get, we'll get Dan Hidea to be in this movie, which in many ways, even though it's feature number six for me, in many ways it felt like feature number one because I'd never been just a writer director before. And, uh, and it was really a way for me to use all the tools that I'd learned to tell my story, which I hadn't done before in a feature length movie. Uh, so for Dan Hidea to play the sheriff, uh, in a way it was like, wow, that, that person that you loved as a child, kind of like Tom Savini is gonna be in your film. And that matters to me personally and professionally. And Dan knew it, you know, I told him, I was like, look, Blood Simple is that movie for me. And he was really happy about that. And he was great to work with because he, he's done 200 movies. So he can play any version of the sheriff that you want, you know, but he was very curious. He's like, tell me about the entire movie. Like, tell me about the tone of your film. Tell me about the themes of your film. Tell me about the game of Slapface. And, uh, and that was how he found the character was like, all right, how do I, cause he, he's also a painter. And he, I think he was thinking, how am I a mosaic in your, in, how, how am I a piece of your mosaic? You know, how do I fit into your world? And like, once he, once he knew the, the environment we were creating around him, he knew where to pitch his performance. And he was a real joy to work with. Everybody in this movie, it doesn't make good copy uh, to say everybody was a real delight to work with, but it was the truth. You know, it's like, I, I, you know, these actors were really great. They were really skilled. They were really talented. They were there for the movie. They really wanted to be there. And then they gave so much. They gave their passion, they gave their talent and they were collaborative and they were open. Uh, so I would work with any of them again. Um, and I'm really happy and grateful for the experience. But yeah, casting was decision number one. You know, let's get the best cast possible because it will make it all feel very real for the audience. It definitely felt like everybody was firing on all cylinders, like behind the camera and in front of the camera. Real quick, I want to go back to the creature because there's sure. the, the makeup effects I thought were amazing. Like like what you were kind of saying, like going back to Karloff as Frankenstein, Robert England and Freddy Krueger. I think it was... <laughs> I think it was like, I was watching a bonus feature. I just, I, this is just a quote. I remember I was watching a bonus feature on the original Halloween and Jamie Lee Curtis was talking about, you know, Nick Castle walking around as Michael Myers saying like, you know, he did more things that, you know, made it more than just, you know, a fug in a suit. And yeah, like, I, I would say that performance. about this, this creature, like there was just, there's just an aura about it. Like what, what was kind of the concept design or like how did this how did this look come to you well um i think it started we started with the notion of um what if the witch from grim's fairy tales was transplanted into our three-dimensional reality because the world of slap faces is grounded and real like the lower income family in the woods is presented with you know with relative naturalism you know kind of like the way that uh, while i'm not comparing myself to spielberg's et like it was a great reference for us where it's like the entire house that elliot lives in feels grounded and real and it makes it more plausible when et shows up so reverse that and say like how can the witch be plausible what would the witch be like if we treated her realistically and as a grounded character with wants and desires and needs nevertheless the face of this creature will be the the monster we associate with gingerbread houses, but what would that be if it were really scary? 
and weird. And what if that witch's head was placed on an elongated body of like a really tall person mm-hmm. where everything feels very stretched out and fingers are very long. One of the things that helped that was uh, Anna Davis, our wardrobe designer. We talked a lot about uh, Virago being a woodland creature, a creature that could blend in with the trees. And the, that long cloak that she wears is kind of modeled after the bark of trees. So it's a, it's a rural witch that could blend in with the forest and is almost a part of the forest. Um, and uh, uh, we all kind of, and then Anna was like, well, what if, what if she had like a hood that could like hide her face and make her face more mysterious and in the shadows? And like we were doing all these tests on the wardrobe and Lucas Hassel, the actor said, well, what if she has like a belt around her waist with a bunch of toys and trinkets that suggest that she's been doing this for hundreds of years, luring in children and she has collectibles. Uh, And all of those things like figured into the design of the creature. Now the hands-on day-to-day work of uh, building the monster was um, uh, Sandy Washington and uh, Tony O'Brien were the two artists who created the creature. And then when they showed up uh, at the location, they immediately picked the basement, of course. They're like, all right, we're, get, we're, we're, we're special effects. We're going to work in the basement, uh, which was dark and creepy. And, uh, and you know, like the, it was really interesting because um, they kind of had to learn about like what the monster was. You know, we, we unfortunately we were never able to do a test during pre-production. I'm very angry about this still. Uh, <laughs> Uh, because, you know, we really needed, I really wanted us to see it in three dimensions before we shot. And on day one, the assistant director and I scheduled scenes that could have been cut out of the movie. You know, we said, all right, let's just schedule scenes that, you know, like, since we haven't seen this monster yet, it's going to be a very expensive test where we see if this thing works or not, which is not the way to do it. You don't want to be testing special effects with 30 crew people standing around in a night exterior in the woods and be figuring out what the monster is supposed to be. But unfortunately, that's what happened. So day one was we shot a bunch of stuff with August, running around in the woods, all very easy things for day one. And then we filmed uh, some stuff with the monster. Um, and immediately we could tell that the monster's skin was too pale and like there were design elements that we needed to fix. Um, and, you know, we went to Sandy and Tony were like, make the skin darker, make it browner, make it feel more like she's from the forest and so on. Uh, and by day two, we, we fixed it and we made it better. And then every day it got better and better and better. Uh, but, um, but I would encourage any filmmakers making a horror film, like contractually obligate your special effects department to do a test. I mean, that, I've done that on my next feature. We're doing tests. But um, you don't want to be finding that stuff out on day one of principal photography because there's nothing more harrowing than standing around with your crew and shooting stuff and like being like, oh my God, is this going to fail? You know, I spent so long trying to make this movie and the stuff that we're shooting right now really sucks. Uh, and it's because we just didn't, we were unable, you know, the, the department head was unwilling to, to do it. Uh, and there we are. So now we're, now we're doing the test on the clock, you know, on everybody's time. Fortunately for us, Sandy and Tony were game and really talented artists and, and like were willing to go above and beyond the call of duty. So they, you know, they were basically hired by the department head to implement the monster and then they, suddenly they're in a situation where they are creating the monster and they stepped up and like helped us like realize this creature. And then the rest of the time it was like, it wasn't us and them making the movie. It was all of us together, like building this monster and Sandy and Tony were great. You know, they were hands-on and collaborative and fun. Uh, 
and uh, Sandy had been working on a lot of like much bigger movies uh, and TV shows and stuff. And, you know, he was kind of excited about the possibility of making an independent film because he no longer felt like one of 300 special effects artists making something. He felt like he was contributing to the story himself. And it like in much the same way of Mike personalizing Tom and making him drawing a lot from Mike Manning's life to inform the character of Tom, you know, Sandy was saying like, this is my chance to make my monster, not somebody else's, not being part of a machine that is building someone else's monster, which was really great. Yeah, no, it, it was, it was a cool, it was a cool monster. I, I would, would you call it witch or just monster? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, it's like, I call it all sorts of stuff, but I mean like yeah. uh, the producers always call, call the Virago monster a witch. Yeah. I go back and forth. I always, I always called it the monster when I was making the movie because I just have such a love of monsters in movies. Like I mm-hmm. love Frankenstein's monster and I love, you know, uh, the Guillermo del Toro creatures and so yeah. on. And it's since I was so inspired by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I always thought of her as a monster. Yeah. Um, even though she is modeled after a Guillermo's fairy tale witch. So I go by both the monster, the witch, the creature, um, all, all, all definitions apply. Yeah, definitely. So this movie was probably one of the more, just to go back on uh, your lead actors, like performance and just how, like you, you mentioned, like, you know, he needed to know grief and what grief felt like. And I just think he nailed it so much. And there's so much great drama woven throughout this story all the way up to the climax. And I just felt like there's so many moments of just gut punches while I was watching it. Talk to me about, you know, directing your approach to directing, you know, great drama in the horror genre. Well, you know, I, I think that um, it's the thing I it's the, it's the thing I love about telling stories. You know, it's that you know we want to tell a dramatic story through the medium of horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you know, a great reference for emotional horror is David Cronenberg's The Fly, yeah. where you don't really want to watch a movie about someone rotting away, dying of cancer, but it is much easier to watch someone turning yeah. into a giant fly. And I remember crying and crying at the end of that movie because I invested so, so deeply in, uh, in Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis and their relationship and those characters and their love for one another and they're trying to make it work and it's a tragedy. Uh, so with, um, with Slapface, you know, it's like come for the monster and then stay for the dysfunctional family drama. Uh, but the intention <laughs> of the film is to create a tragedy that is cathartic and breaks your heart. And the only way that you can do that is through investing in characters that you care about who have depth and complexity. Um, and the, you know, the, the people in Slapface are all kind of a mess, you know, like all of them are damaged goods, uh, which are the kind of characters that I'm interested in um, spending time with. Uh, because um, I think it was Guillermo del Toro who said that we, um, we like we 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 um, like people for the parts of them that are perfect, but we love them for their imperfections, and uh, all the stuff in these characters that makes them complicated are the things that also I think make them feel very human uh, and make us uh, care about them and want them to do better. Uh, even Tom, you know, who is clearly abusing his younger brother, he doesn't think about it as abuse. Uh, he thinks about it as like trying to wake up his brother and like create some sort of shock that allows them to connect. Um, 
and and yet you know in the moment where Tom most wants to talk to his brother when he's like telling the story you know retelling the story of how their parents died as almost a ritual unto itself Lucas little boy says to him I don't want to talk about it you know we promised never to talk about this so you know even in those moments where like the you know one of the antagonists of this film is really trying to open up the the ostensible protagonist is like no I don't want to I don't want to hear it I don't want to talk about it um and that's hard you know but that goes back to mary shelley's frankenstein for me victor frankenstein and frankenstein's monster are both damaged goods they both are like they're both yearning for something that you know like one of them wants to essentially be a parent and one of them wants to be loved and neither of them can get the thing that they want and that's uh many of the characters in Slapface have built their own impasses that prevent them from being able to achieve what they desire so with lucas and his girlfriend mariah um, it could be a very tender love story between two weird little people, but Mariah is afraid of the of losing her social currency with her friends by dating yeah. this lower income kid who's a first class weirdo. Great uh, subplot, kind of, and they think he's kind of a creep. Uh, so she can't have both. It's almost like she's having an affair, and when you're having an affair, like you're choosing between two pyramids that are smashing into one another. Yeah. Uh, and if you broke down the film, every single character like has wants and needs and desires and ultimately wants to be loved, you know, and, and there, there are things in their way that prevent them from getting what they want, either through their own anger or their own insecurities uh, or their own damage. Uh, and when you look at the movie and when you, when you look at the movie with a sympathetic eye towards all the characters, then you're slowly watching the tragedy unfold because you want them to do well. You know, you want the lovers to wind up together. You want them to have a safe and happy home. And, uh, and, and yet the ways that they're going about it will create an inevitable crisis and, and destruction. Uh, so that's the, that's the tone of the, the movie they're going for. And, you know, some, some reviewers like that even really like the movie, like we've, we've gotten a lot of great responses, but like, you know, Sometimes there's the criticism of the bleakness of the movie being very harrowing and hard. Um, and I don't know, maybe I just like bleak movies, you know, maybe it's not that I'm a nihilist. It's that I think that when we're talking about abuse, uh, it can't be easily solved. You know, it's not the kind of thing like I hated in movies when, you know, the kid is being abused by the father and then Arnold Schwarzenegger comes in and punches out the dad and that solves the problem forever. You know, it's oh, like, it does not work that way. You know, like when families, when families are rupturing and social workers step in with the best of intentions, you know, like often the children do not want to be separated from their abuser, you know, and that's harsh and that's hard and that's not easily resolved. Um, and I wanted to tell a story that was going in that direction that like looks at the situation and all of its messiness. Um, but I, I would encourage the people who think of the movie as being bleak to also uh, treat, you know, like be, be open to the characters. I think, I think no one deserves cruelty and everybody deserves a chance. And, uh, and even the worst of the characters in this, uh, in this movie, I feel compassion towards them. You know, it's like, I, I feel that, um, you know, you want them to do okay. Even the monster, you know, even, the, you know, it's like, I mean, like a lot of people who watch the movie, like the, the monster is their favorite character because they're like that, that poor creature, all she wants is a friend. You know, all she wants is like to connect with this little boy. 
And yet there are things in place that prevent that from happening. It's kind of like Disney's The Fox and the Hound, if I could bring up a, a, a children's movie from back in the day, where the fox and the hound can't be friends, you know? Even though they try, even though the fox and the hound love each other in that movie. One of them is a fox and one of them is the hound. One of them is a scorpion, the other one is a frog trying to cross the river. Mm. You know, inevitably, you know, you want the thing to work out, but there's that danger just because of the nature of who they are that they will uh, self-sabotage their own situation. Well put. Um, It's funny you bring up The Fly because I I would have to say once the movie was over and I just kind of, this this movie was one of those movies where once it ended, I just kind of sat for a few minutes and just took in what I just saw and didn't, I didn't expect to be, I mean, look, I'll be completely honest, just based off the title slap face. I thought I was in store for a horror comedy before I watched mm-hmm. the trailer. Yeah. But, um, definitely wasn't that, but you mentioned Cronenberg's the fly and I kind of in my mind compared it a little bit to that with how it felt, because I remember I, I saw that film went in blind and I think I only caught like the tail end of it. So I didn't even really get to see a lot of the love story between Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis in the first act mm-hmm. of the movie and just how that movie unravels with what happens to Jeff Goldblum in the climax to what needs to happen. I won't spoil it. I know us genre film lovers have seen it, but go, go watch track down the fly and watch it. It, it breaks your heart. And breaks your heart. It, yeah. That movie breaks your heart. And Oh, like, Oh my God, for something so graphic with what happens to Jeff Goldblum and his body. And yet that just really deep heartfelt message squeezes through all this, you know, I don't want to say gore, but just kind of monstrous thing. It, it was, it's beautiful too. And yeah, I think when you tap into sadness in horror films, it can be incredibly moving. You know, I, one of the, uh, one of the movies that I always really liked growing up was Don Coscarelli's uh, Phantasm, which is one of the yeah. few adult films that has a child protagonist in it. Uh, I always loved that movie uh, because I thought it was like a boy's adventure story told through an adult lens. Mm-hmm. It was inviting you into an adult world. Um, but the, you know, that story also does the fairy tale thing of like the child's parents are gone, you know, right from the beginning of the movie, they are dead. And, uh, and that creates a haunting melancholy quality underneath all the weirdness of phantasm where there's like the tall man and the little, you know, Jawa type creatures and the flying balls and the planet and all that stuff. I mean, all that fun gonzo science fiction horror stuff, like the, at the root of that movie, they, the thing that motivates the main characters is grief, uh, which I always thought was so powerful. Um, there was a critic who uh, said that I was like ripping off a part of the Hitcher, uh, and I was like, "Well, well, both of us were kind of ripping off the Terminator. Why don't you? Why don't we acknowledge that? You know, it's like like if, like I, I don't mind being told that I'm ripping somebody off if like uh, if it's actually true and like Phantasm certainly." You know, it's like it, like this, the the influence of Phantasm uh, was uh, powerful, uh, and the way that like I, and and while that movie could have leaned even more into the emotional undercurrents, like the subtext of that movie is so powerful. So mm. uh, um, if like if there's an underlying sadness in a horror film, I think that can really inform the work. But I think that's there in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. Weirdly, not in the young characters in the van. But in Leatherface, like there's that really weird scene where that this one of my favorite scenes in the movie, which is a total classic. So Leatherface kills off one of the kids 
and then like runs to the window and looks out and is like, where are they coming from? You know, it's like looking out the window, frightened, you know, being like, where are all yeah. these people coming from? Like invading my house. And he sits down and he's tapping his head and he's really, you can tell that he's terrified. And you're if like, you watch it from his perspective, character detail in the middle of this, you know, what we think of as a slasher movie uh, where we're humanizing this monster uh, and spending a, it's a very specific character detail that makes you feel empathy for this totally demented creature mm-hmm. uh i was like what a great note to hit of sadness mm-hmm. and strangeness uh in in a movie and it, was, it made it very different than a lot of the slasher movies of that era for me yeah if, if you watch that movie from leatherface perspective it's a different completely different movie <laughs> oh for, for the general <laughs> audience um you mentioned don coscarelli real quick and yeah. i think this is just another movie that touches on just something really sad and it hits you right at the end. I do a rewatch every two or three years of Bubba Hotep. I think it's such a good movie. Oh my God. Like the first time a friend, let me borrow the DVD. I was like, what the hell is this? I don't, I don't understand what the hell this is. And for some reason I got, I got drawn back to it and I, I, I got it. Like, this is just a movie yeah. about what we do to our old, what we do to the old. And we, it's almost like they're just, you know, throw them in a home, whatever. And there's just this really meaningful message at the very end with Bruce Campbell, who's supposedly Elvis and Ossie Davis, who believes he's John F. Kennedy. It's yeah. a very campy movie, but there's a beautiful score that goes with this message. Um, yeah, that movie, that movie checks all the boxes for being like a fun Elvis and JFK versus mummy movie and so on. I mean, all that stuff <laughs> is super fun and campy and delicious and bruce campbell is doing his thing it's more it's glorious but i remember that that movie did do that sneak attack thing of like yeah. uh i saw the poster and it said bruce campbell is elvis ozzy davis is jfk versus the mummy i was like i am seeing this movie like right now it's gonna be so much fun and then the movie does do that sneak attack on you where like it is way more it is way more nuanced than you expect it to be and it has way more of a a, a lot to say about um about stuff that we just do not want to talk about, which is like how we treat the elderly and mm-hmm. how it is to be older and like what that means to as a, as a human being growing older. It's like a demographic that we just don't want to see in movies. But when, but when it's told with such tenderness and compassion, you know, in the middle of this very fun movie, it was like delightful. Um, but that was like one of the tricks with Slapface was like, uh, uh, I remember at Fright Fest, I was listening to um, these wonderful critics, um, Mike Munzer and Louise Blaine from Evolution of Horror, which is a great podcast. And they were saying, oh yeah, slap face, it'll be nice. You know, we'll see that like boy in the monster story. It'll be like E.T. with children and bikes, like Amblin, you know? And then they see the movie and they're like, they're uh, punched in the gut, as you say. Yeah. You know, and they were and they were really hit by the emotional power of the movie and like you had to sit there like you know afterwards like looking at each other like oh my god this happened Mm. to us i was very moved because i respect them a lot as uh critics and critical thinkers of movies so when i heard their reaction to it i was like yeah that's right you know that's kind of what we wanted to do was like come in for the you know come come to the monster movie but then stay for like where it where it sits you know stay stay where it emotionally lives throughout the course of the film yeah uh last thing i want to ask you is this film 
you know, once the credits roll, there's something that comes up about a, a strong anti-bullying message uh, from the, you know, all you guys, the production company, I think Dread Central, who's got their name on this film. Um, just how it makes a stance on anti-bullying and, and you really, going back to everything we talked about tonight, like you really feel, you know, the the drama of this kid being picked on and whatnot. And I mean, and also like just a sidebar here, like I, I don't think I've seen a movie or at least it wasn't done in such a serious way where it's actually two girls picking on a little boy. I, I, I don't think I've seen anything like that in a while, or at least taken this seriously. Um, what, what was kind of, why did you guys kind of decide to make this stance on the film and make it be about this and, you know, really bring that message to the forefront once the, once the credits rolled? Well, I think it's, you know, I really love horror movies and it always became a real source of uh, joy for me growing up and a source of escapism in a weird sort of way. Like being scared reminded me of the fairy tales, like I said before. And like when you're telling a story about child abuse uh, and about bullying, you know, and you have a monster in it, you know, it creates that question, uh, you know, like the, the Dan Hedaya character asks at one point, like, who is the monster, Lucas? Are you the monster, Lucas? And so on. You know, but it's like if, if you're telling a horror story and then you're placing very real world fears into it that traumatize people when they're growing up and can be very triggering for people, you know, then what is the real source of horror? Is the horror the supernatural, fantastical elements of the movie? Or are they the stuff where it's like humans being cruel to other humans? And to me, like that was always so much scarier. Like, you know, if, if audiences come to the movie expecting Slapface to be the name of the monster, and then they're hit, they're literally put into a situation where they're seeing these two brothers like slapping each other in the face. It's like that kind of pain and the causing of pain to me is far worse than any monster, any fantastical creature that you could put into a story. So I think that when we were making the movie, the producers were enormously interested in the social value of, a, of an anti-bullying film. And I think that uh, Dread Presents and um, ultimately Shudder all felt very strongly about that uh, disclaimer at the very end, or that statement at the very end saying like, this is, this is how we feel, this is our stance. Uh, which I do feel strongly about because I believe that uh, no one deserves cruelty and uh, no one should feel humiliated. Uh, so the, the movie is not meant to trigger anyone. The movie is meant to be uh, coming from a place of, um, of openness and of, of interest and of uh, care and compassion. Well said. Well said indeed. Well, I've spoken highly enough about the film. I'll just say it again one more time. Congratulations on the movie. It, it, I love it. Uh, everybody who sees it is going to love it. I don't see anybody who I don't understand anybody who wouldn't be moved by a film like this just to kind of, this is the part of the show where I just kind of ask the guests, like, I mean, I, well, you did actually kind of say you're about to start shooting a movie next month. So yeah, that's we what's got another next one coming up. So um, yeah, March 1st, I start principal photography on my next feature. Um, it's really, I'm really excited because most of the films I've done in the past couple of years have all been in upstate New York which have a certain kind of, you know, Sleepy Hollow, Nathaniel Hawthorne yeah, flavor to them. I like that vibe, yeah. You know, it's uh, the, the, the leaves and the trees in New England have a certain quality to them. And I haven't made a film down south before, 
but the producers of the film that I'm working on right now had seen Slapface and uh, interviewed me and hired me to tell their story, uh, which is set in the South, down in Savannah, Georgia. And it's, uh, it's about a very different kind of monster than, uh, than the Virago witch in, uh, in Slapface, uh, which excites me. It's a different kind of creature that comes from a different kind of folklore and a different American tradition. Uh, so um, I can tell more about that story once we've made some announcements, but I am ex enormously excited to be going back to work and uh, telling a story that I care about. The other one that we're doing at the film festivals right now is a film called Draw Up and Stare, which is a movie with ghosts in it. And it has a remarkable group of actors in its own right, uh, Michael O'Keefe and the Academy Award winning actress, Melissa Leo are the stars of that film. So that will be doing the festival run this year. Um, I couldn't be more excited, but I love to work. I love making films. You know, it's I've spent my career mostly doing work for hire, as I said, but like Slapface allowed me the opportunity to tell something more personal. And it feels like things are going more in that direction now where like there will be more stories to tell that are uh, uh, as a writer director. Um, so now, now I have that backlog of scripts that I can like circulate around with producers and hopefully uh, there will be more stories to tell. Good for you, man. Good for you. Now, so that's cool. Savannah, Georgia. I was just there right before Christmas. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not far from there. So my wife and I took a little trip up there. I love that town. I'll keep posted. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's. I love that town. It's, it's. I've been back multiple times. Uh, beautiful historic town. Um, anyway, uh, where can we, if we want to track you down on the internet and stay up to date on these things you're working on? Well, my website is called, uh, Kip films. That's my last name. K I P P films with an S.com. I haven't updated it in a while, so it's a little bit out of date. Uh, I've been a little busy, but, um, <laughs> the way to find out about stop face, if you want to follow the journey of that film, we're very active on social media. So on Instagram and Twitter, it's Slapface Film. And then on Facebook, it's uh, Slapface Feature Film. Uh, and if people want to follow the journey of the movie and see what the critics are saying and where it's going, you know, uh, what's next for it, then I invite everybody to track it down that way. Cool. Cool. Yeah, it is streaming now on Shudder. Uh, just dropped last week. It'll be about a week and a half by the time this airs. So, uh, Jeremiah, thank you for a journey of an episode. This was like a this was epic, man. I you gave me a gave the audience a lot to to listen to here. That's good content or whatever we're calling it. Well, um, I think it comes from you being a wonderful interviewer and asking great questions. Uh, oh, come I mean, on! While now. we have this moment, I'll just say that. It's really great to be on a podcast where um, there's, a, there's a wonderful conversational quality to what we're doing here, but also you're asking very detailed questions about the, um, about the process, which I'm very interested in because I'm a process junkie. So um, thanks for having me on your podcast. It was a real joy talking to you and uh, I hope we get to do this again sometime. Dude, we will. I'll put you in the pool of people I'm bringing back on this show. Um, yeah, every movie you come out, you can come back. Uh, thank you. I'm blushing now. <laughs> um, all right. Well, you guys know the routine. Uh, leave a comment, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and I don't know. Yeah, I always kind of suck at my outro, but we will see you next <laughs> week on the basement. Take care, everybody. Hey.